Last month, I was featured on the podcast Psychology After Dark, and I wanted to share it with the listeners of Brains Bite Back as we discuss the moral and ethical implications of dark web markets. If the name Psychology After Dark sounds familiar, the show's host, Dr. Jessica Mecono and Dr. David Morelos, joined me on our previous Brains Bite Back episode, The Psychology of Conspiracy Theory Beliefs. In this episode of their show titled Silk Road, we discuss what is crypto-anarchism, the philosophical underpinnings of dark web markets, and how dark web markets impact everyone even if they are not actively buying or selling goods or services. I also share my thoughts on the case of Ross Ulbrich. I should make one thing clear though, I don't profess to be the most knowledgeable person when it comes to dark web activity, I just have a keen interest in the subject. If you do want to hear more on the dark web from experts, I would recommend checking out an older episode in the Brains Bite Back catalogue titled Exploring the Dark Web with an Ethical Hacker and a Former Israeli Police Cybercrime Operative, which is mentioned a couple of times in this episode. Anyway, here is the interview. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to Psychology After Dark, the podcast where we explore the dark side of the human condition. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica McCono and Dr. David Morelos. And today we have a special guest joining us for part of the episode. He's the host and creator of Brains Bite Back, which is a podcast that discusses issues related to technology and psychology. His name is Sam Brakia, and we met Sam a while back. He was gracious enough to have us on an episode of his show where we discussed conspiracy theories. We invited Sam to be on our podcast since this topic is directly related to technology and psychology, and we knew he would have a lot to contribute. So without further ado, let's get to our discussion with Sam Brakia. Hi, Sam. Thanks so much for joining us. We love Brains Bite Back, so it's really exciting for us to have you here to talk with us about the Silk Road. We wanted to see if you would start out by telling our listeners a little bit about Brains Bite Back and what led you to create this podcast. Yeah, sure. Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, great to be on. And what led me to Brains Bite Back? Well, to be honest, I have a degree in psychology, so my academic background is in psychology, and I've always been fascinated by it. Even when I was a kid, I used to buy huge, huge books of um, basically for university students. I used to read them as a kid, and I was always obsessed with psychology. And later, after I graduated, I went into technology sales and then focused on writing for a technology publication, The Sociable. And I was passionate about psychology and technology, and I became very passionate about podcasting. I couldn't find a podcast that filled this niche of psychology and technology. So I decided to, to give it a try and start out. And uh, fortunately, from uh, the superiors at the publication, they gave me the go ahead. And we quickly got some big guests on. Um, Nicholas Casey from the New York Times and the vice president of McAfee were on the first few. And uh, then it kind of just snowballed from there. And your podcast, it really is very unique. It's unlike any that I've come across or that I've listened to. And uh, you have great guests on there. We, we really enjoy listening to it. And so we're just really, um, really excited to have you here. So, you know, to be honest, David and I are not the most technologically savvy people in the world. You know, we're both Gen Xers. You know, we're on the, the younger side of that generation, but we still didn't grow up with technology the same way that millennials did. You know, I didn't even have a computer in our house um, until our, my senior year of high school. 
And at that point, I only used it really to write papers. Like we didn't have the internet. Um, I don't remember even being on the internet until college. And at that time, the internet was very different than it is today. So, you know, I know that your background is in psychology and also technology writing. And I was wondering if Maybe you could talk a little bit about the technology behind the Silk Road, you know, things like the dark web and, and Bitcoin. And, you know, I know that they're complex enough subjects that we could probably do entire episodes on each of those. But I'm wondering if you can just give kind of a general overview. Yeah, sure. Now, I must start out by saying that when it comes to technology, I am not a nuts and bolts kind of guy. I can't break things down and tell you how each part works. My interest and my greatest knowledge really comes from the more philosophical and theoretical side. That's what I like to, that's what I enjoyed writing about. And that's kind of what I like to explore on the show. But from what I understand, the deep web encryption technology sends users data through a large number of intermediate servers, which protects the user's identity and secures an anonymous connection. And then this then transmits information that can be decrypted only by a subsequent node in the scheme, which lead to the exit node. However, I do have an earlier episode of the podcast on Brain Spike Back dedicated to the deep web. So if anyone wants to find out more about how it works, you can check that out. And you'll have two experts who are ethical hackers explaining this who can do a far better job than I ever could. Great recommendation. We listened to that episode and it was very interesting. And, you know, the experts really kind of broke it down. So we highly recommend our listeners check that out. So, David and I, we watched, we did a lot of reading about the Silk Road. And we also watched a documentary called uh, Deep Web, which talked quite a bit about Ross Ulbricht, who is kind of thought to be maybe the creator of the, the Silk Road or one of the creators. And they talked a lot about the philosophical underpinnings of the Silk Road concept, which centered around something called crypto anarchism. Sam, can you talk a little bit about this idea and what it essentially entails? Yeah, sure. So crypto anarchism is a form of anarchy that uses computer technology. And it does this through the use of uh, cryptographic software for, confidential, for confidentiality and security while sending and receiving information over computer networks in an effort to protect their privacy and their political freedom and economic freedom. Uh, essentially, these people believe that the government has no right to assert certain powers over them, and they use modern technology as a tool to evade these restrictions put in place by the government. I think the best way of describing it in its most simplest form, in an everyday kind of use that perhaps people can relate to, and it's not a direct parallel, that you can see, but you can see the use of end-to-end -end encryption such as Telegram, used by protesters as a similar tool. So protesters around the world use this app so that tyrannical governments can't track and read their communications. So we can understand the need for this type of technology when faced with oppressive governments like this. However, sites like Silk Road and especially sites like Alphabay have taken this to a whole new level. So it seems like there are a number of implications for the average person through cases like this where technology is changing the legal landscape, so to speak, about privacy and freedom. So I wonder if you could talk about what drew you to this particular case and perhaps explain why it's important to people like us who aren't buyers of illegal drugs or into crypto anarchism. Sure. So I think it's important to start out by looking at just how big the illegal drug industry is. So according to Science Daily, spending on illicit drugs in the US is $150 billion annually. 
which is pretty big considering that's rivaling what Americans spend each year on alcohol at 158 billion. So whenever you have such a large amount of money that is spent on anything, it can have a huge impact on the wider economy and global politics. So for example, the opioid crisis, uh, you don't need to be an addict for that to impact you in some way, perhaps losing a relative to addiction or simply overdose or higher rates of crime in your neighborhood, or even it becoming a central political issue when it comes to presidential debates or politics. And also when it comes to the US consumption of drugs, this is one of the main catalysts for violence in countries that supply these drugs. So look at Mexican cartels, for example. The reason they're so powerful and prevalent is because Americans and many other first world countries will pay a lot of money to get high. And this is creating a booming billion dollar trade and the same occurs here in Colombia, actually. Many tribal lands and indigenous people that have lived on these lands for many years are being forced to work for narco organizations and killed if they stand up for themselves. There's a big problem here. And that is because there's a huge demand for cocaine in the US, the UK, and many other countries. So the point is that drugs will always be consumed. And if there is a demand, uh, there's going to be a supply. So the most important thing for everyone to focus on even if you don't actively buy drugs, is how this is being consumed and where the money is going. And just like cannabis, this must first become a political issue before it can be legalized and regulated. So everyone kind of has a responsibility in a way to pay attention to this and understand that even if they don't consume drugs, this will impact them in some way. And you can kind of see how Silk Road is an attempt in a way to kind of be the closest thing to being a regulated and organized market while still remaining underground. So your podcast uh, focuses on the intersection of psychology and technology. So the basic concept behind the Silk Road seemed to be based on this idea that a person can ingest whatever they would like to in the name of personal freedom and autonomy. So crypto anarchists, as from what I can tell, uh, see technology as a way of helping us to achieve this kind of freedom. It seems, however, that for each use of technology that helps in this end, such as Tor, which is the the, I guess you would call it a program or the hard, the software that allows people to do this. There are other countless uses of technology for the purpose of doing the opposite, such as the sophisticated data tracking technologies that monitor every click we make on the internet. So I was wondering, how do you see this sort of push and pull between the crypto anarchist types and those who would use this technology for the opposite? And you brought up the idea of governments being able to spy on people who may be dissidents or people being protesters, things like that, using this technology to control people, satellites, being able to spy on people, that sort of thing. Well, again, without strong technical knowledge, I think it's hard to say exactly how this could work. I think this is a classic example of a cat and mouse chase that we see throughout technology. So for example, ad blocker technology versus anti-ad blocker technology or deep fake technology versus technology designed to identify deep fakes. There's always this back and forth between two sides trying to compete and neither side is particularly or necessarily good or bad. It just depends on who is using it, how they're using it and what their intentions are really. So as researchers, you know, Jessica and I like to maintain a healthy sort of scholarly distance, so to speak, from the cases that we talk about. But that being said, it seems as if Ross Ulbricht can be seen on one hand as a crusader of personal freedoms and on the other hand, a typical criminal and, of course, everything in between. So would you care to comment on what your own personal opinion of Ross Ulbricht is based on your own research of this particular case? Yeah. So to be honest... I have fairly mixed opinions about this. 
I don't think he deserves life in prison. I would say that I agree with what he aimed to do, but it's hard to say that he did it for the greater good of freedom when, to be honest, he earned so much money. And all I can say is that he got caught. And in a way, I feel like he deserves jail time just for that. I mean, if you're going to run such a large criminal organization that is that big, you should be smart enough to stay one step ahead of authorities. Um, so that's kind of like a, a fair punishment in that sense, but not life in prison. However, some do say that he's not necessarily the brains of the operation, but instead the full guy. That's, again, something that we, we discussed in our Brains Bite Back episode on the dark web, which I will let your listeners go and check out, as the guest I had on did a great job of explaining why he believes that to be the case. Uh, nonetheless, in this case, he definitely was made an example of by authorities. But when compared to others in this industry, he's not the worst. So there's another guy, and this is actually interesting because this is the first time that I really got interested in this kind of like dark web um, online marketplaces uh, in the news. And I remember seeing this uh, Canadian-born Alexandre Cazes, who was 26 when arrested by Thai authorities on July 5th in 2017, ran Alpha Bay, a site that grew to be bigger than Silk Road. However, Kaziz was never sentenced as he was found hanging in his cell shortly after his arrest uh, from what appeared to be a suicide. I have less sympathy for Kaziz, though, because he started Alpha Bay, which, according to a U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration agent, which perhaps isn't going to be the friendliest source when talking about this site, Alpha Bay is dedicated and designed to facilitate the sale of illegal narcotics, drug paraphernalia, firearms, and counterfeit and fraudulent goods and services. So it does sell credit card information and worse firearms, which I don't believe Silk Road did, or I don't believe Ulbrich uh, set out to, to sell. Um, and I have a big issue with the sale of firearms because I think it can lead to very dangerous outcomes. So for example, in 2006, an 18 year old killed nine people in a shooting spree in Munich using a pistol bought on the dark web. And while this might not be a big deal for U.S. listeners since guns are fairly commonplace in Europe, we have much stricter gun laws. Uh, in all honesty, the only time I've ever seen a gun in the U.K. is in Heathrow Airport with armed police. And obviously you can go down the road of like guns and the, the right to bear arms and all of that. But that's, uh, that's probably something for another, another podcast. But very close to my home city in the UK, uh, a teenager who was obsessed with mass murders was jailed for 16 years after buying a gun and ammunition online. And he used Bitcoin to purchase a Glock 17 handgun and five rounds of ammunition from an online dealer on the dark web, ordering it to his family home. So definitely in places where guns are hard to come by, the dark web creates an opportunity to buy them and they can definitely fall into the wrong hands. You know, I, I was reading that response uh... Sam, and I, I think I always find it interesting to see what or to hear about uh, people's impressions of Americans, you know, coming from different countries and stuff, what their impressions of us are. And I, I would say that that is actually a huge deal here, too. I, I would just say it that way, because it is probably one of the single most politically divisive issues that we have in this country right now is the how people get a hold of firearms, what mm. Uh, legal rights are to them and things like that. Obviously, gun violence is a huge problem here in the United States. And then we have uh, an entire group of people that are very, very uh, pro what we call Second Amendment to the Constitution. And then we have a, a whole group of people that are very pro uh, gun control laws as well. So it, it becomes this 
very, very sort of um, big issue here where people are very, very divided over. As a matter of fact, it's probably one of the single biggest issues, I would say, one, the single biggest hotbed issues that we've had in a long time. I don't know. Would you agree with that, Jessica? I would agree with it. And you know what's interesting is that the people that uh, tend to be, um, and I, I know that I'm making a sweeping generalization here, but um, a lot of people that are pro-Second Amendment or pro-gun rights, you know, they cite things like the dark web as being the reason that regular citizens have to have legal means to acquire firearms. You know, this idea that people who don't respect the law are going to find a way to obtain weapons either way. And so, you know, I, I think that it does kind of feed into this, um, this whole issue of the dark web. Now, of course, like you said, the, the Silk Road wasn't selling firearms. At least a lot of what I read said that initially that was something that was prohibited on their, on their site. Um, but there are certainly other websites, you know, dark websites that do sell sell guns. And I think, you know, it can even tie into the issue of drug sales and drug legalization. And this idea, again, that the government shouldn't have a right to tell us what we can and can't do when it involves our own bodies or what we're ingesting. Um, and, and, you know, kind of harkens back to this libertarian viewpoint, uh, which I know that Ross Ulbricht was or at least initially kind of seen as a leader of the libertarian movement. Um, he really did believe in those philosophical backgrounds and this idea that people should have the right to make decisions for themselves. So, you know, I, I think this case, like pretty much all of the cases that we discuss on this podcast, at first blush kind of seemed very cut and dry, like, okay, this guy is making you know, billions of dollars off of the sale of, of drugs over the internet. And and, you know, most people, I think, would say that that's a pretty dark motivation and that, you know, he was, what he was doing was bad and, and that he should be punished for that. Um, you know, but in our readings of The Silk Road and watching the documentary Deep Web and in our discussions, it, it really highlights the complex nature of this case. You know, and I think there are multiple facets and, you know, these questions of surveillance on the internet and control and, you know, what, what is freedom and how do we respond to limits on our freedom? And I think understanding both sides, both the dark and the light, you know, that's how we can really start to have an appreciation, not just of the cases that we discuss, um, and this case in particular, but of our human nature in general. Uh, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I would say it's a tough one, but you can't argue who has the right to do what. Like, for example, like obviously in the US, you have your, your right to bear arms. And in the UK, we don't have the same rights. So I suppose it's, it's hard. You can't say one is correct and the other isn't correct. There's, there's exactly like you said, it's not cut and dry. There's many complicated factors and issues here at play. It's, it's fascinating to see how technology sort of is accelerating a lot of these issues, you know, adding fuel to the fire, so to speak. Yeah, um, I, I agree. Sam, we've really enjoyed having you. This has been such an interesting discussion. And for our listeners who are interested in hearing more about how technology affects us, our psychology, and our society, we highly recommend you subscribe to Brains Bite Back. Also, be sure to listen to the Brains Bite Back episode on the dark web called Exploring the Dark Web with an ethical hacker and former Israeli police cybercrime operative, 
Um, it's a great episode and it definitely goes into some more detail about the dark web. And Sam, where can our listeners find your podcast? Uh, they can go to any of their favorite podcasting platforms or the usual places. And on top of that, they can find us on YouTube. So we are under the sociable. So if they search Brain Spike back on YouTube, they will find our episodes and uh, they can subscribe to our YouTube channel, which is The Sociable. And they can also follow us on Twitter at The Sociable. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this episode. The pleasure was all mine. Thank you so much, folks. Great talking to you, Sam. That is the end of today's show. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this and you want to hear more episodes just like it, then follow and subscribe to Brains Bite Back wherever you get your podcasts. We are also available on YouTube under the channel of our publication, The Sociable. Just search Brains Bite Back and you will find all of our episodes there. We really love hearing from you, so leave us a review on iTunes and on other podcasting platforms to let us know what you think and we'll give you a shout out on the show. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at, at The Sociable. And finally, go to sociable.co where you can find all our episodes and plenty of articles on topics just like this. Thanks again for joining us and until next time, stay healthy and stay safe.